0: From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live in Dialogue in LA, I'm Aaron Tracy. On the pod today, Gina Gianfrido. From the outside, it seems like Gina has a pretty ideal, old-fashioned writer's life. She's constantly getting her plays produced, selling out theaters, getting rave reviews, and winning awards. And she writes and produces episodes here and there of the big New York-based TV series. You know how when you go see a play and look in the program and every actor lists at least one of the Law & Orders among their credits? Similar with writers. Look up your favorite New York playwright, chances are they've got a Law & Order credit. Gina has written on four different Law & Order series, which is completely bananas. No writer makes their living entirely in theater anymore, right? I mean, I'd actually be curious if there's a single exception to that. Even the biggest names in playwriting, who you'd think could afford to just write plays, still do TV and film. Kushner, Shanley, Bates, Annie Baker, who else? Suzanne Laurie Parks, Tom Stoppard, they all write for Hollywood. I actually once met a great playwright who would just taken a meeting with Steven Spielberg. He said that Spielberg asked him if he knew who Tom Stoppard was. The playwright said of course he did. Stoppard's arguably the greatest living dramatist. Spielberg smiled, leaned in, and whispered to him that Stoppard wrote every single word of Indiana Jones in the last crusade, but he didn't want his name on it. I've never been able to verify that story, but if you go back and watch the movie, it's very easy to believe it's a really good script, very stopper like. So there's a little Hollywood gossip for the dozen script heads like me out there. The man who wrote Arcadia also wrote, he chose poorly. Sorry, I'm really bad at impressions and accents. Um, But it's a funny thing when writers sacrifice money and recognition in order not to take credit for their work, like Stoppard may have done with Indiana Jones. You know, there's something freeing about writing or rewriting a script, then not having the pressure and burden of your name on it. I saw Mike White speak at a screening recently. He seemed genuinely embarrassed about having his name on the Emoji Movie. He didn't need to be. Anyone who's seen his TV show Enlightened isn't going to think any less of Mike White's writing. But we're sensitive to a comical degree. I recently had a TV project set up at a studio and wanted to take it back because they were so slow setting up pitches, but I had signed a contract with them. So I was stuck. I sucked it up and decided to write the script on spec. I sent it to the studio. A couple weeks go by. Finally, I hear from them. They've decided to give me the project back. Apparently they disliked my script so much. They were no longer fighting to keep the project. So the outcome was exactly what I wanted. They gave me my project back. Success, right? My reaction? Distraught. How could they not like my script? Filled with self-loathing. I got exactly what I wanted, and I've since sent the project up you know, somewhere else that I'm really excited about, but I'm still so mad whenever I think about it. Oh, uh, writers. All right, let's see if Gina is healthier than I am. Gina is a two-time finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in Drama. She's won a Guggenheim, an Adder Critic Circle Award, a WGA Award. In addition to writing on those four different law and orders, she's written Cold Case, she's written House of Cards. I'm excited, let's do it. Gina Gianfriedo. By the way, thanks to our friends at ScreenCraft for their help getting the word out about this week's episode. Check out ScreenCraft.org for top screenplay competitions, educational events, and much more. Okay, hi, Gina. Hi. Um, so, you have written on four different law and orders. You've written on the original Mothership, Criminal Intent, UK, the newest one, True Crime... Um, I wrote on SVU. So between the two of us, I think we've got every single one of them represented except for Law & Order Trial by Jury. Do I have that right?
1: Yeah, I think there was briefly a Law & Order LA.
0: Oh, right. Totally. That was like one season. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So four different ones. How do you like working in the Dick Wolf universe?
1: Um, Well, I like it. It works for me uh, because the shows I worked on didn't have a writer's room. I uh, am not the biggest fan of writer's rooms. Exactly. So um, it, it worked really well for me that we worked in pairs so or we worked one on one with the showrunner.
0: So, how does it work exactly? I see with True Crime that uh, all eight episodes are um, credited to only three people, right? The showrunner yeah. creator, Renee Balsay, you, and Diana Sun. So how does that work? Does uh, are you guys? There's no writers' room. Are you guys um, just divvied scripts with uh, Renee writing a big season-long outline or what?
1: Yeah, w- yeah. Renee did um, a season-long outline, and then um, Diana and I each did two episodes. Uh, he did four, and we would just go to his apartment um, and beat out our episodes as we as we needed to.
0: Right. I've been to that apartment. You go into his little. Uh, his office, yeah. which is filled with arts and it's that's that's got to be one of the nicest apartments I've ever been to in New York,
1: yeah, it's pretty wonderful,
0: yeah, um so it would just be the three of you. Would there be assistants were there nobody else
1: no it would it would just actually be two of us at a time because um, i you know I wouldn't be around when he was working with Diana,
0: okay. Have you ever been on a show where there was a writer's room?
1: you know. Yeah, I mean, I did a writer's room. The first TV job I had was a show called Cold Case, and I did—I just did one uh, one freelance episode. So I, I sat in the room for that, um, and I did a room on The Alienist, which was great because it was uh, it was kind of a limited time writer's room. We just got in and got out as, as quickly as we could because the showrunner was living in London.
0: And so uh, I guess I'm trying to understand, um, you know, what it is about The Writer's Room. Do you think that, uh, do you think writers do better work, um, you know, when they're just sort of on their own silently in a room, or is it just your personality that you're just not a huge fan of, you know, spending 12 hours a day with the same yeah. eight people or
1: what? Yeah, I mean, I, I without without naming names, I, I was on a show where the, the Writer's Room was really a disaster, and I think that um, it was a disaster for reasons that... Many writers' rooms are disastrous, which is you know hours and hours and hours of screwing around gossiping, reading the newspaper, not doing any work, and then there's utter panic when the deadlines are looming um, and I just don't have the stomach for the the hanging out
0: right, yeah, I know what you mean. I guess a lot of people feel like the reading the newspaper and the gossiping about whatever. Is kind of like work that you're preparing yeah. your mind for work or something. But I'm kind of with you that it's a lot of wasted yeah. time.
1: Yeah, and it's it's unfortunate that, that the in some ways that the alienist was such a quick a quick job because it was the first writer's room I I'd been in where it was, you know, I was the youngest. It was mostly you know older men who'd been in the business a long time and they weren't looking to screw around. You right. know, we just got in there and worked.
0: Right. Yeah. Um the writer's rooms I've been in, um, I often feel like it just um it comes from whoever the leader is, whoever the showrunner is. And if the yeah, showrunner it, is a great guy or a great woman and really wants to, you know, work hard but also make it a supportive environment, it can be a great experience. But yeah. more often than not, the person is just incredibly crazed and anxious and on deadline and it, you know, it can be um sort of poisoned by that.
1: Yeah. I saw I don't know if you saw Annie Baker's play, of The Antipodes. I did not, no. Yeah, it's a play about a writer's room. Um, and I don't know what show she was on, but I uh, I had the, uh, watching it, I mean, I loved it, but it was very uncanny for me because it was, the writer's room was a disaster for all the reasons that I have been, you know, in, in disaster rooms. So right. it was, a, it's a really cool play about um, a
0: writer's room. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. Um, I watched, I, I saw her play The Flick, which yeah, is, Yeah, you know, I love f- The Flick. Yeah, me too, but that, that idea of, you know, three people trapped within a few walls, um, just having, you know, endless conversation. Um, did you ever see that old David Duchovny movie, uh, The TV Set?
1: No, I've never seen that.
0: It's really, really good. It's really accurate about what it's like in a, not just in a writer's room, but, you know, building a TV show from the ground up. Yeah. Um, so I want to play a clip from uh, your work on uh, this this latest Law & Order, True Crime. Uh, this is from episode three out of eight of the limited series, which you wrote. Um, so just to set it up, Lyle and Eric Menendez have been arrested for the true 1996 murder of their parents. Edie Falco plays Leslie Abramson, the defense attorney representing the brothers. In this scene, early in the episode, Abramson is overseeing a meeting of the defense team talking strategy. So let's play the clip.
1: Rich, greedy brats, according to my husband as if it's their fault they were born rich. There's this shopping spree. Watches, a Porsche, condos, a restaurant. How did they spend money before? Well, Lyles had a credit card since he was 15, lives in a condo his father bought him in Princeton. What kind of car did he drive? Cars, a three-year-old Alpha and a Beamer. Eric had an 87 Escort. Hard to be a rich brat in an Escort. So mostly their spending after the murders was the same as it was before. It's perception. People think they have advantages because they're privileged, and now that privilege is being used against them. So next problem, the notes that Oziel dictated after sessions with Eric and Lyle on Halloween, and there's a tape of a December session. We need to know what's on them. I've got a friend from the Academy at the Beverly Hills PD. I'll ask her. Cindy has more connections than AT&T. That's why I hired her. That, and I'm the only investigator who can put up with you. Um, this is what I've got on Ozeal. His license was suspended in 86 for improper billing practices. There are two complaints pending with the Board of Psychology. One alleging that he raped a patient and tried to strangle her with a phone cord. Jesus, why isn't he in jail? That's a good question. Now, you may have heard that there's a confession on those tapes. There probably is. Between these four walls and these four women, Eric told me they did it. Lyle hasn't admitted anything to me. They still deserve the best defense we can give them. Are you sure about this one, Les? These boys shot their mother in the face. All right, we're all mothers here. All right, Cindy and Marcia know about my mother. She put me last from the second I was born. She opposed me every chance she got. Still, I love her. I, I can't imagine the kind of pain that must exist between a mother and child to provoke that kind of violence. Well, the father was authoritarian, verbally abusive. Maybe the mother was too. There's still huge pieces missing here, but we'll find them.
0: It's a great scene. Um, Yeah. Do you remember writing it at all?
1: Yeah, oh yeah. As we were, as Renee and I were discussing it, um, one of the things we talked about is that you had all of these women working on the case who were all mothers. And um, that they, you know, that they had, they were having to defend someone who had, as they say in the clip, shot their mother, you know, shot his mother in the face. Um, and so that was kind of, you know, the the impetus of the scene was to put those women together right. and have them have them talk about that conundrum.
0: Right. Right. Um. It's, you know, those kinds of scenes where there, what, there are there five women in the room, they can get kind of unwieldy. Yeah. Um, do, you, uh, do you sometimes struggle with having too many characters in a room and, and sort of keeping it, um, you know, uh, getting the scene to where you want it to go?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, the, the difficulty when you have a certain, you know, on Law & Order, you tend to have a good mouthful of information you need to convey. Right. I think in the in the scenes with um more people it it can be a challenge to distinguish one person from the other when they've when they've got uh a lot of facts they have to they have to get out.
0: Right. Um and I mean it's tricky, you know, uh, when Edie Falco's character says, you know, that her client basically confessed to her. Mm-hmm. Um all of a sudden uh there's a you know, the potential for for sort of an ethical issue there that they're now trying to get off um, a a person who they know is guilty. Right. Um, And so is that something that you um, uh, sort of were eager to to sink your teeth into?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, what I was most interested in, in doing Menendez was uh, trying to write some of what I think was the unfair depictions of, of the the brothers that had gone before. Um, And I think what, People, you know, often don't remember, um, and I only remember dimly that um, they were really the butt of jokes. That Jay Leno made jokes about right. on Saturday Night Live did skits about them, um, and I think today, I think you wouldn't, we wouldn't do that. I don't think we would lampoon people who were claiming to be, you know, victims of horrific sexual abuse. Um, so I, uh, I was happy to be on a project where. Um, you know the abuse was really taken seriously because I, I I do believe them.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, let's let's talk a little bit about that. I'm I'm curious about your opinion on the popularity of true crime on TV right now. I mean, there's so many examples. The Menendez brothers, of course, is a is an example. Um, wh- what are your thoughts about this new fad?
1: Well, I th- I think it's you know it's one thing to do um, a case like Menendez um, or OJ that's that's, you know, really been litigated a long time ago and is, is over. Um, And some of the ones where, you know, like, like serial, like the case Mm -hmm. um, in serial or the case in Making a Murderer, where, um, you know, they're, they're more recent and there's more um, of a possibility of, of reopening the cases. Um, You know, I worry with serial and Making a Murderer that, there is the danger, I think, of of uh, getting a guilty person um, another chance. Right. Um, so that you know that that haunts me a little bit, um, and I think it's it's very hard to dredge it up for the families.
0: Yeah. I, I, why do you think people are so into this right now, though? Like you, you know, the Jinx was also giant mm-hmm. for HBO. Um, as opposed to all the law and orders that you've worked on, where it's, you know, ripped from the headlines, but the crimes are, you know, uh, uh, the stories are very much um, invented by the writers in order to, you know, work with dramatic structure. Why do you think that these true crimes are, are taking such a hold of people?
1: Well, I mean, I've always been a big true crime consumer. Um, I think that... Uh, Some of the, you know, there's always been a lot of kind of schlocky true crime on cable. I mean, I shouldn't say schlocky. I watch all of it, you know, (laughs) um, on the, you know, the datelines, the 48 hours, um, and everything on investigation discovery. Um, I think that when some of the higher end, um, more well-regarded media outlets started doing it, you know, NPR and HBO, um, that it, it legitimized it. A little bit and then certainly you know the the OJ um, show you know one I think it won Emmys I think it yeah. you know it it was suddenly you had you had true crime being done in a in a higher class way um,
0: right with Oscar winners yeah winners. yeah. 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 I mean, it's interesting. Maybe O.J. is sort of the outlier in there because f- for me anyway, part of what was so fun about O.J. was we all remember that case so incredibly well. Yeah. And this let you go behind the scenes to see what it was like in rooms that we weren't privy to, you know, in 1994, you know, what it was like for uh, the defense counsel to talk to O.J. and, you know, realize that they were defending a guilty man. Um but for for these others, like the Jinx, it's almost the opposite. It's about uh, what, what got me so excited was it was it was playing out in real time. So after the last episode, you pick up the New York Times and he's arrested because of what he said in the last episode. right um, right. So we, it's like we get to participate in it, which is so fun
1: yeah and but, but you know also there are the ethical issues because you know you, you have to believe you know the the filmmaker said they they only discovered that confession at the very, you know, after they finished shooting and they were editing. I, I don't know. A part of me is a little dubious that that's really the case. Not I really? Won- I, well, yeah. I wonder if they had it sooner.
0: Right. And if they did, did they have an ethical, <laughs> if not legal obligation to go to the FBI, you yeah. wonder? Yeah. 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 I once, uh, Andrew Jarecki, I once scouted uh, his family home on Gramercy Park for uh, a TV show I was making. Uh, which is the most incredible, uh, uh, maybe next to Renee i is the most incredible apartment yeah. I've ever seen in New York. Um, cause his father was, I think a billionaire hedge fund guy. Yeah. Right. And then Andrew, this is the guy who created the jinx. Uh, do you know what his claim to fame is before the jinx? No, he created, um, seven, 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 what was it? Seven, seven, seven film. You know, the, the number that you would call oh, before yeah. the internet. Yeah. yeah, that was his. Uh, and made a fortune off of that, the, to get showtimes. He also, he's such an interesting biography. He also co-wrote the theme song for Felicity. Wow. Yeah. And then made the jinx. Diverse list of credits. Um, but so having written on all these different law and orders and, um, you know, you've written on House of Cards, you've written on Cold Case, um, uh, is, is theater still your top priority? Are you um, you know, taking out TV pitches every summer, every year, cable stuff. Um, how do you divide your time between you know your theater and your TV projects?
1: You know, I I am not a good pitcher, um, so I haven't been doing that. And I've been lucky that I've had enough work um, without the, uh, without pitching um, that I've I've been able to remain steadily employed. I'm I'm not. I don't have my next gig right now, so I think that pitching might be a skill I need to start to hone. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've I've sort of taken the projects that are interesting that come my way and done theater. Um, you know, just balanced them, just juggled them.
0: Yeah, I'm curious when you say you're not uh, a good pitcher. I mean, I you know I completely understand that pitching is is um, you know it's sort of like an art form in itself. But what do you think? Um, what do you think holds you back? Do you have ideas you're excited about for new TV series? Do you want to run a series?
1: Uh, I don't particularly want to run a series. I mean, I would be I would be interested in creating a series and maybe having a, a non-writing showrunner in there in there with me. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't want to run production? No, not really. I think. In some ways, mo- I don't know if you'd say modesty gets in the way. I, You really, to pitch, have to go in there and convince them you've got a fantastic idea. Right. And um, I kind of grew up, you know, my dad was Sicilian and he used to talk about the evil eye. So I, I, I've always been, I guess I was raised to sort of downplay everything. Um, and I, I have a hard time selling myself and selling my work. That's
0: interesting. And I guess, I mean, I guess if you really wanted it, if you wanted your own show, you might find a way to, you know, uh, get over that. But because it's not terribly important to you, um, uh, you know, maybe that's why.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, Well, I mean, but theater, it sounds a little bit like you're saying um, you don't feel like your ideas are, you know, worthy enough or good enough to 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 be made into a TV show, but you don't feel that way about your plays. I mean, in in many ways when, you know, writing a play is even more of a sort of an individualistic exercise, right? It's, you're asking people to pay money, get a babysitter, come to the theater to see what you alone have, uh, you know, written for them.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of agony and self-doubt in my, in my process though. I think, um, my, the process of getting a play written for me is, is there's a lot of self-doubt there. I, I don't think I ever really think I've got, I've got a real winner on my hands until, I don't know if I ever feel that I do, but um, yeah, I, I mean, I hear what you're saying. It is asking people to leave their houses, to come to the theater. Um, I'm not the most prolific playwright in the world. I work on them for a really long time.
0: And how does it work? Do you, you sort of develop an idea slowly? And then yeah. how long from the time you develop an idea to, you know, having a rough draft? What, what's the longest part of the process for you? Do you outline all of your plays?
1: No, I don't outline, but I spend, I spend a long time uh, with the idea. It takes me, God, I, you know, I have ideas I kick around for years before I do anything, you know, on paper with them. Um, I, I germinate the idea for a really long time.
0: And when, when you have an idea, is it, is it usually come from plot? Does it come from character? Is it an idea for a theme? What, what, what's usually the, the beginning of it for you?
1: It's usually, it's usually kind of, uh, uh, something that that's like morally ethically sticky, um, that I'm, I'm trying to work out in, in my mind. Um, you know, with Becky Shaw, I think I was, you know, I was interested in what, you know, what do you owe someone who you don't know very well, um, who is reaching out to you with need? Mm -hmm. Um, and then with Rapture Blister Burn, it, it didn't make it really onto the page, but I was, uh, I was very interested in, you know, the, the impact of internet pornography. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had done a lot of research and ultimately I, I couldn't really use the research, but, um, it was, you know, it, it wound up being about an academic who, you know, is, pornography is one of her areas. But, um, but the, the the initial impetus to that for that play, honestly, was kind of ethical, moral quandaries about pornography.
0: Mm-hmm. So, okay, so that comes first, and then you sort of figure out the characters that would um, sort of be the best vehicles to yeah. get deep into that subject. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, when you put pen to paper, you start writing Act One you often, because you don't outline, you're not sure where it's going to go, or do you have an idea in your head what the ending might be?
1: I, no, I, I like to not know where it's going to go. Um, I, it keeps it interesting for me to, um, to not, not know what the characters are going to do.
0: Right. You know, when we had Donald Margulies on the podcast, and I asked him if he was starting his writing career today rather than the, the early 80s, would his focus, you know, be on theater, or would he have gone right to TV? Um, so I want to ask you the same question. If, if you could be on a TV show with no writer's room, you Mm -hmm. know, and it was your idea for the show, um, what's more attractive to you, TV or theater?
1: You know, I, I theater is my, my first love. And, um, and when it, you know, when it, when it's going well, there's kind of nothing like it. Um, it's a heartbreak when it doesn't go well. Um, but I, I, have had highs in theater that I don't imagine I would have had in TV. I, maybe I'm wrong.
0: What does that stem from? Just the live audience nature of it or what?
1: Um. Yeah, yeah. Um. Seeing an audience connect with, with what
0: I've written. And so with all this training as a playwright, I mean, I'm curious. The, the Law & Order clip we played, you know, is probably a, a little under two and a half minutes, which is pretty long for, for a TV show. Yeah. Whereas in a play, you know, you can, you can have a scene. Obviously, they can go for for 15, 20 minutes, if you want, do you feel like, um, do you feel like writing TV um, has informed your playwriting?
1: Yeah, I I do. Um,
0: Do you tackle scenes differently?
1: I don't know if I tackle scenes differently, but I think that, um, you know, I took a a playwriting class with Romulus Linney once. Oh, cool. I did too, actually.
0: He's great. Oh, yeah? Yeah.
1: Um, he used to say, don't be willfully obscure. He was like, it's much better to be too obvious than to be willfully obscure. And I think I, before I started doing TV, I think, I think I was sometimes will willfully obscure. And I, I learned when I got into TV, you know, you have 40, whatever it is, 48 minutes. Last now. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're going to, if you want something to get across, you just, you got to say it. Um, I had, you know, one of my early... My early days at Law and Order. One of the producers said he was. I was trying to explain to him that it wasn't one motive. There were three motives, and they were intertwined. And How'd he that go said, over? "You know," he said, "We're not doing scenes from a marriage. You have to just <laughs> tell me what you know."
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a completely different beast. Yeah. Um, I mean, do you ever feel like you know maybe the Law and Orders, um, because of the the sort of formula that they work under, are a little bit different? But you know, I always think of that. Um, Arthur Miller quote, when he talks about writing, that the best writing comes from that which embarrasses us always. Do you think there's room to do that in TV? Or that's the kind of thing you can only do in in uh, theater? I
1: think I think you can do it on TV. I think I think probably not on Law and Order. Yeah. Um, But I think I think uh, on cable for sure.
0: What are your favorite written uh, cable shows right now? Or streaming?
1: Right now, boy. Um, funny, I was—I'm not caught up on anything. But no, I, nobody is. Yeah, I. Ta- but I. I taught a little TV writing uh, workshop, so I was going back and, and watching, and uh, I loved Enlightened on HBO. Oh man,
0: me too. Yeah. I was just talking about Mike White. Yes,
1: I really loved it. So good. Um, and I. Uh, I just started watching orphan black i like orphan black a lot
0: i haven't tried that one yet yeah Yeah. people say her performance is extraordinary yeah
1: yeah
0: yeah enlightened is one of those man i wish it had got another season apparently mike white had a whole nother season planned out but you know you and i were the only ones watching it unfortunately
1: apparently yeah
0: such a bummer Um, we've kept you for a while here, but I want to, uh, I want to, I asked you if there was any scene from someone else's work that you wanted to play and then discuss a little bit from a craft perspective. So you picked this awesome scene from Magnolia. Um, so just quickly to set up the scene, Julianne Moore plays Linda, who's married to a much older man played by Jason Robards, who's on his deathbed. In this scene, Linda walks into a pharmacy and she hands a young pharmacist her prescriptions. The young pharmacist heads to the back to fill them, eyeing Julianne more suspiciously as she waits alone at the counter. So let's play the scene and then we're gonna talk about it a little bit. Cats and dogs out there, huh? must have a lot going on for all that stuff back there, huh? You could, uh, could have quite a party, all that stuff. You been on Prozac long? Dexidrine?
1: Uh, Interesting drugs. Dexadrine's basically speeding a pill, you know? But I guess a lot of the doctors are balancing out the Prozac with the Dexadrine, so. That liquid morphine, man. That, that'll knock you down, out, around, up and down, someone's not careful. You can't mix those up, you know.
0: Strong, strong stuff here, boy. Wow. What exactly if wrong, you need all this stuff. Motherfucker. What? Motherfucker. You what are
1: you talking about? fucking asshole. Who the fuck Okay. Who the well, look, lady, fuck I'm do you tra- think I'm you are? I come in, in here, you don't know me. You don't know look, who I am, what my life is, and get, you have the balls, the have, have decency to ask me a question about my life. What fuck what you too! Don't you call me lady! I come in here, I give these things to you. You check, you make your phone calls,
0: look suspicious, ask questions. I'm sick! I have sickness all around me and you fucking ask me my life? What's wrong? I'm using death in your
1: bed house where's your fucking decency and then i mess fucking questions what's wrong you suck my dick that's what's wrong in you you fucking call me lady shame on you shame on you shame on
0: both of you oh man that's such a powerful scene it's so
1: great
0: uh, so tell me why uh why you picked that scene what what about that scene works for you
1: I would really, I you know, I would love to say it's about craft, and I think it is wonderfully crafted. But I, it it happens to be very personally satisfying. I just feel like I've been in that position, uh, without you know being too revealing. I mean, I, I feel like I've been in situations with um, medical personnel um, yeah. <laughs> who are who are making making assumptions um, or you know making making leaps that they know everything that's going on when they don't.
0: They're so condescending. They're so patronizing in that scene. Um, You know, and I looked quickly at the script and, you know, um, uh, he specifically says that it's a young pharmacist. So it's this guy who's, you know, younger than Julianne Moore, who's making all sorts of um, accusations implicitly about her. Right. Um, And then, uh, uh, you know, her performance, obviously, is, is so much of what carries it.
1: Her performance is amazing because she knows she, she does that thing of trying. She stays cool and collected for so long before she she finally loses it.
0: What did you think of the um, the music playing under it? I'm not sure I'd ever really noticed that before.
1: Yeah, you know, I I don't know that I'd noticed it before. I went and rewatched it. Um, it I think it's amazing. It's like it's like almost like the music in Jaws. Like you. Yeah. You sort of know something not good is going to happen.
0: Totally. Does that, I, I don't know, I mean, coming from theater, do you feel like that's a cheat ever in TV and movies that they use music to sort of express emotion as a way to, you know, do what the words aren't necessarily doing?
1: Um, I think it can be, yeah. I don't think it is in that scene, but um, I, I think in film. I remember I remember feeling about Goodwill Hunting. Mm-hmm. That I wonder what Goodwill Hunting looks like without Elliot Smith's music. That's
0: a really good question.
1: Because yeah. um, it's so much carried by that music,
0: right? Completely. All right. Well, look, we've kept you a while here. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on and talking.
1: Absolutely, it was fun.
0: Awesome. Okay. Thanks, Gina.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
0: That was Gina. I really like her. Um, And not just because we went to the same school. Thanks so much to our producers here at the Yale Broadcast Center, Phil Kearney and Ryan McAvoy. If you dug the show, please do us a favor and subscribe and give it however many stars you think it deserves on iTunes. You can hit me with questions or complaints on Twitter at Aaron D. Tracy or email me at aaron.tracy at yale.edu. See you next week.